is Our American Stories, and it's time for a story from one of our favorite contributors, Herb London. He's brought us his tribute to his father, Yonkel, for our Final Thought series, and also his tribute to his two boyhood heroes and role models, Jackie Robinson and Joe DiMaggio. And his latest is a reflection on the game of baseball at the beginning of the baseball season. It may be hard for youngsters to believe But a generation ago, baseball was America's favorite game. I grew up memorizing baseball statistics and taking the baseball encyclopedia to the bathroom as a ritual. Compared to basketball and football, baseball is in the doldrums. The free zone that accompanies a LeBron James dunk and the Rock'em Sock'em features of football appeals to young people weaned on television excitement. The opening of the baseball season on the heels of March Madness is like a cooling down period a moment for reflection rather than exhilaration. For baseball, as opposed to basketball, is a hot, lazy day in the sun when rhythms of life slow down. For the thrill-seeking generation next, baseball lost its status as the national game because Americans want instant gratification and the latest thrills at their athletic contests. Baseball gives its fans a different kind of experience, one in which discussion at the game is encouraged, During the lapses in activity between pitches and every half inning, people in the stands talk. Rarely do fans talk at a basketball game. There isn't an opportunity to do so. Recently, I went to a spring training game in Fort Myers, Florida, home of the Minnesota Twins. The game was played in a double-A stadium, which stands on top of the field. Octogenarians who have fond memories of baseball's glory days have retired to Florida and sell tickets and flip hamburgers. It is charming to see these retirees wait eagerly for an autograph of Paul Molitor, Hall of Famer. At the beginning of the game, local retirement centers are honored. I overheard heated conversations about players of yesteryear. Was Eddie Matthews a better third baseman than Harmon Killebrew? Baseball is a game for those with a memory. In the twilight of one's life, it is a sport easy to digest. One's memory for bank accounts and investments may fade, but baseball lives as an indelible mark. Unfortunately, the modern baseball game is not what it once was. It doesn't help that stadiums are mammoth and largely homogeneous. The friendly environs of Tippett's Field have not been duplicated, even at Jacobs Field, the much-acclaimed Cleveland Indians stadium. Players today, even when exceptional, don't have the personalities of the game's earlier heroes, such as Willie Mays, the Say Hey Kid. Ted Williams, the splendid splinter, and Jolton Joe DiMaggio. The baseball has adopted its own version of trash-talking, once monopolized by basketball players. And some baseball players do a dance around home plate when they hit a home run. These recent practices detract from the game and undermine the gentility, once uniquely associated with baseball. Baseball owners are often foolish and greedy and can certainly learn lessons from the owners of the National Football League. Baseball has sought gimmicks like Bat Day to sell the game. Kids don't see much baseball on television because of the dominance of night games and as a consequence usually do not share the enthusiasm for baseball I enjoyed as a child. Yet with all of these caveats, with all of the flaws that accompany the game, when April arrives and umpires shout, play ball, I still get a rush of anticipation. The ball is probably juiced and pitching talent is diluted through expansion. But the thought that the Chicago Cubs might duplicate its World Series victory after being in the wilderness for 108 years 
or that the Cleveland Indians might ascend to the big dance in October is bound to give this upcoming season special meaning. And thank you, Herb, for that great report. And now it's time for one of our favorite contributors. And it's a very different kind of contributor. Stephen Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams, and not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College in New York and was the foremost expert on patriarchy and a guy who daydreams a lot. And we now bring you Steve and his latest daydream, and before it, Steve reads to us what he calls his mandatory disclosure. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. I am at a dinner with my wife and about 10 other people, all very religious. We are beginning uh, the dinner, at the beginning of dinner, a minister looks uh, at me and says, clearly giving uh, me a great honor, that uh, he would be most pleased if I would say grace. My wife blanched, suspecting that I had never heard grace uh, said, and certain that I uh, have never um, said grace. I myself am not exactly sanguine about the situation, never having been religious by any definition of the term. But with no way out, I am certain that humiliation is the only possible outcome, uh, and I resign myself to biting the bullet. So I say... Thank you, dear Lord, for giving us food when so many are hungry, drink when so many are thirsty, and friends when so many are lonely. Amen. The others seem to be satisfied. And by the way, that was beautiful, Stephen. Beautiful, perfect, short and sweet. I'm a Christian who really sometimes can't believe how long people can go on, A, a little bit jealous, and B, a little bit impatient because I'm getting hungry. This is Our American Stories, two of our favorite contributors in one segment. Herb London, a New Yorker, and Steve Goldberg, a New Yorker. And that's the thing about this show. You hear all walks of life, every accent in the world. By the way, go to our Shiloh segment, and you'll hear a great Alabaman voice, the great Winston Groom, the author of... You bet. You know the show. What's the movie? Farce Gump. And, of course, the... Great nonfiction, I think one of the great nonfiction works on war, Shiloh. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to check out that and all that we do. This is Our American Stories, the American voices from all over this great country.
is Our American Stories, and today we have Faith bringing us another story from the villages in Florida. And it's not just a retirement community, folks. The villages have over 600 holes of golf, 2,200 clubs, and over 150,000 residents over the age of 55. And we've been sending Faith, our intrepid 21-year-old producer, to get stories from those residents. Take it away, Faith. Margie Bates is an 87-year-old villager and has lived in the villages for quite some time now. And on a beautiful Friday morning, she invited me over to her home so that she could share her story with me. Sorry, <laughs> Good morning, back. Margie. How are you? How are you? Good. Are you ready for sunshine today? It's warm outside. Huh? You feeling good today? Yeah, I am. I'm feeling good most days, you know, just to get a bit draggy. But I'm getting over that, I think. Before we get into how Margie got to the villages, however, did you notice her accent? Well, how did she even end up in the States? Because Margie, she grew up in London, England with her family. Now, this is probably not the London that you are thinking of. With Big Ben, the giant Ferris wheel, the London Eye, and the changing of the guard. This was London during World War II. Watching dogfights and hearing bomb sirens growing up? Can't imagine what that would do to you. Or how that would affect you in your life. What was it like growing up during World War II? Not too nice. Because <laughs> I'm living in London, we got... You know, a lot of bombing. Uh, uh, my dad was working in London then. Uh, uh, but then, uh, when it first started, I can remember when I was probably 10 years old, the day they d- declared war. And it was Sunday. And uh, nobody, I mean, I suppose the adults had talked a lot about it, but, um, you know, I wasn't too aware of much. And I just, I remember saying to my sister, should we get under the bed? <laughs> you know, like, like immediately the Germans were coming for us. So that was kind of interesting growing up, how people, you know, we couldn't show a light. We had to have this uh, blackout paper on the, on the windows. Some people painted their windows black, which is, must have been awful to get off. Um, so it was, um, I remember uh, when it started, and my sister uh, got married in the August of, of that year. Uh, uh, so we had the wedding at home, and I remember that evening was when we had the, uh, uh, the Battle of Britain, and the Germans, because we were in England, we could, they sent over all their planes, and they were having dogfights up there, and uh, we kept running outside to look at that. But then I kept running back. My dad had fixed up the cellar so we could sleep down there. Um, uh, so I kept going out looking, but then it scared me that I'd go run down into the cellar again and come back and look. Uh, yeah, that, that was a, a very scary time. And uh, we, we could, because of where we lived, we were close to railway stations where they do a lot of bombing. 
And uh, so we had uh, um, we had a lot of uh, you know houses bombed around our area. Um, as I say, we would go down in the cellar to sleep at night. And uh, we did have a house, probably it was around the corner, but it was probably only six houses away from us that was badly bombed and everybody was killed, you know, in that house. Um, my dad went out to check what, because you could tell it was close, and uh, stumbled over a body, which was absolutely horrible for him. I remember going to school or something and the siren would sound and uh, I remember this one day I darted into there were some uh, like apartment type houses down the street from us and they had little porches with glass doors and I remember getting going in there when the siren sounded uh, and, and I thought I was what a silly place to go because <laughs> there was all this glass in there. Uh, but then eventually, as I say, it changes you what you would have been doing in your life. Not only did Margie see the devastation of World War II, she had some personal loss as well. At 14 years old, Margie's father passed away. She told me the story. She said it was in the middle of the night her father sat up in bed, and her mother asked him, Honey, what's wrong? And he said, Oh, nothing. I just, I just need a smoke. And that night, he had a heart attack. Perfectly healthy, she said. It was quite a shock to all of them. To add even more hurt and pain, her brother was off fighting in Africa during World War II. So when he came home a year later, adjustment to life without dad, that must have been hard. I don't think I dwelt on it too much because of how old I was. Because uh, I miss my dad a lot. Uh, Were you was, close? Huh? Were you close? Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody was close in my family, you know. Uh, I remember as a kid, one of the things I used to do, and I don't know if it was just on a Friday evening, but I'd go to the... Uh, you used to go to... Uh, work on the underground um, and I'd go and meet him and then we'd walk home hand in hand and I, I think then he used to give me my pocket money so <laughs> uh, but he, he was he was a good dad yeah. yeah I'm so thankful that Margie has memories of her father those sweet memories that she holds in her heart while I was there she showed me a picture of herself sitting on her daddy's lap I could tell she was a daddy's girl. There's nothing like a sweet relationship between father and daughter. The war had just ended and time, of course, moved forward, leading Margie to meet her husband, Bill Bates, an American boy. We met at an ice skating rink in uh, Richmond, England. My girlfriend and I, that I worked with, uh, once in a while I'd go home with her and we'd go skating. Uh, I wasn't much of a skater, but uh, if I skated with somebody, <laughs> it was okay. So we were there this night, and uh, a friend of his, who I had now, I can't remember how I had met him, but anyway, he was a skater. He was in the Air Force with Bill, 
Um, and he had brought Bill to the skating rink. Bill didn't skate at all. Um, so, you know, the, he introduced me to him and that was it. <laughs> so he, he took me to the station because we both had to get the train to go home. And uh, so I, th- I think uh, after that, we just dated. Did you hit it off right away? Yeah, yeah. What did you think of him when you first saw him? Well, I, I wasn't. Uh, I just went over and talked to him. I never thought about him being the one. <laughs> you know, you meet some people and say, oh, you know, taken in by their looks or whatever. But, uh, so he was... Um, uh, Actually, he was the first person I took home, even though I had lots of boyfriends before that. Uh, and I, I was just 21 and he was 20. So I, because he didn't have any family here, you know, I took him home first time to dinner. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny because he didn't eat this later, but when we were first there, um, it was Sunday dinner, so he had a big dinner, and uh, he he said, "Could he have some bread with some uh, jelly?" Everybody said, "Jam and bread," you know. <laughs> Seems so funny, um, but that was, I guess, he was young, and that's what he'd maybe eaten anyway. So he, right away, he enjoyed being with family and getting to come over and uh, um, so he just you know, my family liked him right away but they thought some things that he ate were a little bit strange <laughs> and when we come back more from Margie Bates and Faith's visit visit to the villages and well Bill was an American boy and that's what Margie saw and we learned there Margie lost her her dad way too early at 14. When we come back, this unlikely story from the villages, this lady from London, how did she get to the United States? More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Faith's conversation with Margie Bates. We learned that Margie grew up in London at the toughest time in London's history, no doubt. And that was the siege of the Nazis on London itself, the firebombings, the attacks. And, well, she met an American boy. While she was there, she lost her dad, and we picked things up where Faith left off. After dating for a handful of years, they got married. And Bill's time serving in England was up. So both of them were moving back to the States. Well, back to the States for Bill. Not so much back home for Margie. One can only imagine what that must have been like. Picking yourself up and moving to a whole new country. But not only that, she was going to be living with her in-laws. Were you homesick when you came? Oh yeah, terribly. (laughs) 
because I had gone from living in London most of my life. Uh, we moved to London when I was five. Um, and then we went straight to Bill's parents who had a rice farm in Arkansas. And, uh, they were really nice, but he, he went to work on the farm and left me, you know, with his mother. <laughs> and we had the, you know, jet lag. So um, I probably didn't get up till 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was, she was very nice, but I think she, whether she decided she wasn't going to wait on me or something, but I expected like my family would have, you know, made tea or made me breakfast. I don't know, perhaps she made me breakfast. But anyway, that, that first day, was awful, I think. And, but she was very nice, but I just didn't feel like it was my house. I mean, I would help her do washing up, and, and we did the washing, the laundry together. So yeah, I got, you know, I got to be okay with her. But I really couldn't wait to get out of there. I did a lot of crying in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, I didn't stay there for hours and cry, I just, you know, get a little upset. Bathroom's always a good place to go and nobody's gonna interfere with <laughs> you doing. So it, it was a big, big change. Culture shock, I guess you call it. There's nothing quite like the feeling of homesickness. It's hard. It seems like all you want is a hug from your mother. I'm sure for Margie, the food was different. The place was different. So adjustment was incredibly difficult. Change, no one's really quite ready for it, I would say. Change is necessary oftentimes. It strengthens and grows us in ways that we otherwise wouldn't have. Would your family think about you coming here? <laughs> My mother thought, oh, I thought Bill would just go home when it was done. And I said, <laughs> I wasn't going to date somebody that long just to say, oh, well, goodbye. <laughs> so uh, they they never, I think they didn't like it, but they liked him. And uh, they never said anything bad that I shouldn't be doing this or whatever. So, uh, and I think when you're that young, you don't, um, I knew I would miss them, but... You don't stop to think about all that stuff, you know. So, do you still miss England? Yeah, I. I mean, you get to a point where wherever you are is is home. Um, but I, I was fortunate enough that I went often enough, you know. Um. So after some time of living in the country of Arkansas, basically in the middle of nowhere. Margie and her husband Bill made a road trip. They set out on their journey from Arkansas to California. An 1,800-mile journey with a five-week-old baby in their backseat. But they were determined. This was an opportunity for Bill to be able to go to a good school. Well, I, I had no idea how far away it was. And we drove and uh, uh, in the summer, and I'm sure my in-laws must have thought we were crazy. Didn't have good motels 
in those days of hotels. And I remember stopping uh, because I would go take a look at it. I didn't want to go in some flea bag place. <laughs> but um, none of them were great in those days, and not at all like hotels now. Uh, so I remember like the one night when we uh, when we stopped and then washing baby bottles, you know, in the little bathroom sink, I guess it was. So we were a bit crazy. Margie and Bill loved California. After living in California for a handful of years and having a couple kids along the way as well, Margie's husband, Bill, well, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which is a disorder of the central nervous system that affects movement, often including tremors, and handshaking, which meant he had to quit his job. Parkinson's disease is actually what led them to the villages. We had been living in uh, Chula Vista in San Diego County, and uh, we had a very big house. And we also, because of Bill having Parkinson's, we didn't have a good support group. So we thought, well, we would come out here and take a look not thinking that we bought the next day. And what was it like when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's? It sort of wasn't shocking because I didn't know anything much about it. So, you know, it was one of those things that, oh, you know, we'll take care of this sort of thing. But then, because he really wasn't having symptoms, he was a little handshaking. It was strange because he said, oh, that was, uh, uh, his father had had a little bit of that. Well, I had never noticed his father having it. So it took a while for the doctors to diagnose that. But for a long time, it was, um, didn't really bother anything much. He always kept up his exercising and uh, used to go to the pool and work out. I think I would say probably until we came here, which then he probably had it about several years and, and didn't really stop him doing anything. And the same when we came here, but it's been a gradual uh, thing where it got worse. And, uh, and you could not convince him that he couldn't do stuff because he was a man. <laughs> Don't go outside, honey, you can't do that. Yes, I can. <laughs> it wasn't all bad, you know, like especially at first. We made good friends with the Parkinson's group. It's something I think that takes, you know, you just sort of live with it. Another thing in life that you put up with, you know. After living there for a while, of course, Parkinson's doesn't tend to get better. Instead, Bill got worse and eventually had to go into rehab. But the last time he was in a rehab, and uh, he was supposed to be there for good uh, because of falling and things like that. Um, so he, they did not have a room for him. And so I said, you know, you're coming home. That's, and I wish I had made that decision a long time before. Uh, so anyway, he came home, and I can't remember now. It was around Christmas time, I think. Still okay to a point. He was starting to have trouble with his swallowing, 
which is what happens with Parkinson's. Invariably, that's what happens to everybody. And when we come back, our final segment with Faith and Margie Bates, and this is our continuing series, our 21-year-old producer, our newest uh, addition to our American stories, on the road in the villages in Florida, bringing us Margie Bates' story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to our Faith Garcia, joining Margie Bates at the Villages. And when we left off last, Margie's husband, Bill, well, things were getting worse because of his bout with Parkinson's disease. And then, of course, he was losing weight, and uh, anyway, hospice people did not want him uh, to be eating in case he choked Um, which you know I was quite upset with that because to me he wasn't getting any worse so they sort of stopped feeding him except for um, you know soft foods and drinks and he had he was fortunate he had this wonderful caregiver Rosa and uh, so then it was just downhill from there Uh, and I was looking I have a a picture of he and I when he was much younger and uh, I was sort of comparing how he looked you know because he got so thin and so pale Uh, but it was almost like I didn't see him like that you know Uh, I guess that's what happens when you be married a long, long time, you know. So we would have been married uh, 63 years in the May following. So you feel like you just saw him still as his young self, or? Yeah, well, I I didn't like the way he looked, um, but, you know, that's what happens when you don't... I mean, he lost such a lot of weight because the hospice... um, they had their own way of doing things, and he would always still try and get out of bed. And and up till they started with him, um, he he could do that with help or put him in the wheelchair. But then they decided that it would be better if he didn't get out of bed. And uh, he would still insist he was okay to get up. He could walk. Nobody could tell him that he couldn't. So then they, uh, uh, the nurse then that would come, uh, she said, okay, we'll let you see if you can. So she got on one side of him and Rosa got on the other, and then he started to stand up, but, but he couldn't. By then, he really got too weak. Just last year, Bill Bates passed away 
And after Bill's passing, Margie was left with a lot of reflection. Having the same person by your side for nearly 60 years and then having them die, that's extremely difficult. Not only that, but people who have lost longtime spouses describe living without them like trying to walk around with one leg. March 11th. Was it from Parkinson's? Well, you know, they say you don't pass away from Parkinson's, but you pass away from what, which doesn't make sense to me, because you pass away from what Parkinson's does to you. And uh, he was, um, he had a few falls, which is natural for Parkinson's, and uh, had some injuries from that. How did you deal with it when you felt lonely after Bill passed away? How did I feel? Uh, Well, it's hard to describe, you know. You just feel lost. Um, I I just, you, you have an awful lot of looking back and thinking, I should have done this. Because when you're together all those years, You know, I can see times when I wasn't the best of people, you know, just like anybody else. So, uh, I mean, I didn't do anything (laughs) bad, but, you know, get mad with each other and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah. So that brought a lot of stuff back to where, uh, you know, I felt a little guilty about some things. Yeah, the only thing when he was going through... Uh, the last year or so because he loved sweets and the sweets affected his medication so made him think he could do things and get a little mad Um, and and I think to myself you know I was really very cautious about him having this and uh, he loved bananas and um, if he it was kind of funny because I, he'd have a banana with his breakfast, but if he was, didn't matter how many he'd had, if he was driving by there in his wheelchair, he'd just reach up and grab a banana, put a big smile on his face, and then I'd say, you can't have that. <laughs> so, you know, it makes you think some of those times I should have let him have it, you know, but... You just, when you're looking after them, you just do what you think is best for them, you know. It's sweet that she still saw him as her bill. She still loved him and wanted to take care of him. It really makes you think. It makes you think about how you treat those around you, especially your family. Are those fights that we have, the bickering, things that we can't seem to let go, the little grudges, Are they really worth that last word that we want to get in? Margie certainly didn't think so. She didn't have huge regrets. But she did wish that she could have taken back some things. Her self-reflection and her introspection should be emulated. We should consider how we love those around us as well. And maybe there are more things that we need to just let go. Margie has now been learning to readjust to life without Bill. 
along with overcoming injuries from falls that she has had herself. So she tries to move forward for motivation and confidence because it's easy to lose your confidence. But Margie refuses to live life in fear. And she moves forward, and at 87 years old, she's starting a new chapter in her life. I mean, that leaves the rest of us without excuse. From, from having all the things that happened to me, you know, get fracture in my back and then not walking for a long time. I mean, I could walk, but resting. Gradually, I think I lost my confidence uh, that I had before. Uh, but it's, uh, it's coming back. Confidence in what? In myself, I think, you know, because you spend so much time you not doing anything, and that wasn't me, you know. So, uh, and, and I try to uh, be more confident because, uh, you know, it's gradually coming back. It, it took a while, you know, and I hadn't been driving for so many months uh, to do that and to worry about if I fell again. But uh, that's all getting past, so I feel like I'm more myself. You know, and then I can tell because for a long time there, um, I I didn't really want to do anything. I couldn't focus. Is what happened. Uh, you know, I think I can do this. I don't know. I'll watch TV. You know. So starting back doing things for yourself was difficult. It, well, I don't. I wouldn't say difficult. It was just slower. I had to, you know, because I couldn't move too fast anyway. So like taking a shower, I'd have to, you know, give myself plenty of time. I find it's recently, when you think about somebody dying, it's, it's very hard for me to think, you know, one minute they're there and the next minute they're not, you know, like, where did they go? Um, it's probably you'll go through that when you get older. It's just not something you think about much, you know. Oh, they've passed away, you know. But um, it makes you think a little bit more about death somehow. I mean, you always assume, oh, they've gone to heaven. And then, then, uh, then you wonder, well... You know, I was brought up a Catholic, so you always heard about purgatory. And then sometimes I think it's purgatory on earth, you know. Because if you read the rest of the Bible, um, you know, and Christ said, you will be with me in heaven. Margie has brought us a lot of things to consider. Life, death, family, There's so many other wonderful things that she shared, but I'm just thankful that I got the time that we did. Thanks, Margie, for sharing your story with me. And thanks, Faith, for doing that. And my goodness, what an honest voice. Straight as an arrow. It's why we love talking to old people and kids. No nonsense. No time for it. No reason for it. No airs. We look forward to the next... Next story from the villages are Faith, Margie Bates, and Bill Bates. We got to know him. 
married 60 years, and you could feel the pain and the loss. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Nirvana, and it's off their first album. It's called School. And we love bumping in with music that relates to the segments we're about to do. I didn't know that song, and I'm a Nirvana fan. Thanks for that, Jesse. And uh, joining us right now to talk about a story that we keep hitting in various ways is Angela Browning. And we recently came across a Facebook group filled with mothers and parents, nearly 6,000 of them, who are working on changing the law in Florida to fix a big problem in their kids' lives. But it's not just a Florida problem. It's a national problem. Our kids just aren't getting enough, well, some would say not nearly enough, recess in school. And a new group of so-called recess moms has had enough. We're joined again by recess mom Angela Browning. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Angela, before we start, we always like to know, you know, where where are you in Florida? What particular town? Talk about your family a little bit. And then ultimately, let's talk about what led you to this space. Sure. Well, I live in Orlando, Florida, which is in Orange County uh, with my husband and our three boys. We have 10-year-old twins uh, who just started fourth grade last week and a six-year-old who started first grade. Um, I actually have a, uh, a law degree from Ave Maria School of Law, which is now down in Naples, Florida. Um, but I work as a paralegal for an insurance company. I like having the flexibility to be able to volunteer in my kids' classrooms uh, and, and be there for them when they need me. So, um, so that was a choice that I made. You bet. And so you know a little bit about the intersection of the law and the culture, particularly Ave Maria does a great job of doing that. And Ave Maria is a Catholic law school founded by the Domino's Pizza founder, Tom Monahan, and they do a great job at preparing people to do just what Angela is doing. So, Angela, your your kids uh, suddenly find themselves without a recess. Talk a little bit about where that came from, because obviously there had to be an anti-recess movement before there was a pro-recess movement, only that anti-recess movement probably had nothing to do with parents. Where did this thing spring up from? Whose idea was it? Sure. Well, what happens is, you know, our school districts tell us we, you know, we didn't cancel recess. But but what did happen is that uh, somewhere along the line, this testing uh, really just took over in our classrooms. And the focus switched from the well-being of our children to... Uh, you know, making sure that these children do well on these tests because there are very high stakes attached to them here in Florida. That's where our schools are graded. 
Um, our teachers, their VAM scores now come from those from those test scores. Um, so funding comes from them. And so my children, uh, all of a sudden, were coming home complaining about school, complaining that the day was too long, crying, asking me not to send them back to school. And my older boys had just begun second grade. Um, so I just, it just caused me to wake up and ask what was going on. Why all of a sudden were my eight-year-olds, who are supposed to love school and love learning, um, begging me not to send them back? And and so you're a parent, and obviously you, you take parenting really seriously because you could be practicing law, and what you're instead doing is doing paralegal work so that you can time shift and you can move move the work around, and you can have flexibility to be a present parent. So where did it spring in your head that this was an idea worth fighting for, and then what were the steps you took to fight? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing that I did was I asked, and that's what I think is really important. You know, we tell our group members, ask your kids if they're getting recess, because before this, I didn't even think to ask. So I asked my boys, well, what what about recess when you go out and you get to play with your friends? Don't you get to have fun at recess? And they said, well, we don't get recess that often anymore. And I said, what do you mean you don't get recess that often anymore? And they said, well, we only get to go to recess once or twice a week when we don't have PE. And I, I was just horrified. I mean, some of my best memories during elementary school happened on the playground. And so I looked into it and I realized that my children were getting 15 minutes of recess once or twice a week. Uh, and I had a friend who, um, who lives near to me, but her daughters go to another school. And she and I talked about it. It was the same thing. Her kids were down to uh, two 20-minute recesses a week. And we just decided, you know, this is not okay. It's not okay for us. Our children are young. They have a right to be children. They have a right to play. Playing is developmentally appropriate learning for elementary school children. And we just talked one day in early October of 2014 and decided it was stop time to stop complaining to our friends and, and start being advocates for our children. Well, this is a great story. And I, I, just a little backwards before we go forwards in the next segment. The, the testing and the state testing, and you raised that. And there, there are lots of us who believe that you've got to hold teachers and schools accountable, so we don't, sure. we don't hate testing. But the question sure. is, and I know my little girl's experiencing this here in Mississippi, it, she'll say, Dad, it never stops. It's yeah. test after test after test. We're testing for the test. We're prepping for the test. Then after the test, we take another test. And so, in a sense, you're not saying you don't want any accountability for the schools because we need a way to measure schools. It's just testing gone wild. Absolutely, 100% agree. I am not opposed to testing. I am opposed to uh, a, a culture where the stakes of testing are so high that it takes over our classrooms. Uh, we lose centers in the younger grades. We lose recess. We lose access to physical education. We lose access to art and music. These children are being tested and assessed, and they are being taught to fill in bubbles. And we need to teach children to think critically. We need to, to test them. We need to assess where they are. We need to make sure that we are seeing learning gains in our classrooms. But we can't let it take over teaching. It's we a, need to teach these children. That's so well said. And by the way, these very things we're cutting out might just help raise those test scores, Angelo. That's the point, too, that test scores are complicated and the human mind is complicated. And you can't put people in a box. And my goodness, 
you can't anesthetize them by just having them repeat over and over the same old thing so they can fill out a bubble on a sheet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Recess Moms. And Angela Browning is one of them. And she's fighting the fight in Orlando and in the state of Florida. More after these messages with Angela. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love it when citizens take a stand and punch back at the bureaucracies that rule their lives and our lives, and it happens in every walk of life, but no place worse than our local schools. And one mom, well, she decided to fight back against lack of recess. And by the way, it's not just recess, as we learned in the last segment. It's so many other things uh, because of testing regimes that are now crowding out space for our kids' development, and particularly their creative outlets in, in schools across this country. It's not just a Florida problem, but we have one mom, Angela Browning, who has sparked a mini-revolution in the state of Florida, and we pick up where we left off. Angela, so you know this is a problem, you identify it. I think what moms typically do is they go, and thank goodness there are present moms in the school, uh, they go, let's go to the school board. So what happens right. next? Uh, so we created a petition uh, for Orange County. We created a Facebook page. Uh, we grew our, our number of moms, so to speak. Um, we went to our school board, and we presented them with binders full of research. We came upon the research by accident, um, but there are very few subjects on which all of the experts agree, and recess is one of them. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Association for Sport and Physical Education, the CDC, the list goes on and on. They all find that recess is a critical part of the school day and crucial to a child's development. And so we brought this research to our school board. We presented them uh, with this research. We literally begged and pleaded um, for them to do the right thing, to restore 20 minutes of daily recess for all elementary school students in our district, and the answer was a resounding no. Um, it wasn't just a resounding no. We actually had school board members from the bench uh, say things like, if you take away the play, 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 the school gets an A, A, A. Oh, my goodness. And obviously, we were horrified. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And by the way, how condescending. And this is always what bugs you, is if you know different and you're a citizen and you go to these school boards, they act as if you're the rabble. Like, you don't have an informed opinion. And that may be one of the dumbest things anybody in education could ever say to somebody. And I say that as a dad who won superintendent of the year and teacher of the year, a tremendous educator. And he always fought for creative space for his kids and things like recess because he knew that's how you had an engaged child. So the school board blows you off. 
But little do they know, well, there was a lawyer in their midst and someone who was not, and a mom, even worse, a mom who is a lawyer and has some time. Talk about the next step, Angela. Well, we contacted our legislator, who um, ironically happens to be a teacher in our district. Uh, We we went to him and we said, uh, listen, this is the problem. We have um, we have presented our school board with solutions. They're not interested in them. They are interested in uh, giving us more and more excuses, and we need help. We don't know what to do. And he said to us, very honestly, he said, I don't know if I can help you, but I'm going to research this problem, and I'm sure as heck going to try. And, and he went back, and he researched the problem. He saw that we had gone about this the right way, and, and he called us one day, uh, and he said, listen, I'm on my way back home from Tallahassee, and I want you to know that when I get home, I'm going to write a bill. And we're going to solve this problem throughout the state of Florida once and for all. Um, and we were thrilled. We, uh, we reached out and joined with other recess moms who had their own recess efforts in districts across the state of Florida. Um, we, we have moms that represent 24 uh, counties. And um, we just banded together and we decided that we were going we to try to get this bill passed. And what happened, because it's quite, it's almost a thriller, Angela, because each step you think you're coming up and then whack, you get whacked again. And then thank goodness for persistent parents, you just keep coming back at them. What happened next? Well, uh, the bill was filed in Tallahassee in December of 2015. Uh, We worked our butts off trying to get the bill heard in committee. Um, we traveled to Tallahassee as uh, recess moms. Uh, we would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, get ready, get in the car, drive four hours uh, north to Tallahassee, uh, spend all day meeting with state representatives and state senators, uh, eat dinner, and then come back and get home about midnight. So we managed to get the bill through the entire House with the help of our sponsor in the House, um, who, as I said, was Representative Renee Placencia. We were absolutely thrilled. There were only two legislators on the floor who voted against our bill. In the Senate, however, our first committee of reference was the Pre-K through 12 Education Committee, and that was chaired by a senator by the name of John Legg, uh, who did not like our bill. He said he felt that recess should continue to be handled locally. He refused to meet with us, refused to take our phone calls, refused to respond to our emails. Um, he, he really would have nothing to do to us with us. So unfortunately, we weren't able to get the bill uh, through the Senate. Uh, but we dusted ourselves off. Uh, we have been working in the off season, uh, and we're really, really thrilled about how things look for us next year. We've, um, we've made some really great progress. Well, good for you, because the school board was counting on you going away. And by the way, as my dad always said, he loved active parents. But so many superintendents didn't because they, they were seen as impediments and blockage to just doing what they felt like doing. And for my dad's sake, it was always, let's get the buy-in of the parents because there's nothing like parents who agree with educators. It can be a really, you can, you can make some great changes. And you, you didn't quit. You, you, got, you got a 112 to 2 vote in the House. The Senate blocks you. Um, and you're back at it again. Talk to other moms listening out there in other states Angela, about what they can do. Sure. Well, we're going to need, you know, we're going to need help to get this done. But as I said, we believe this will be our year. It's really important for parents to get engaged and get involved. Until I asked my children um, what they were doing at recess and how often they had it, I didn't know. 
So you've really got to ask your children, do you get that break in the school day and do you get it every single day, regardless of whether or not your kids have PE? If you find that your children are not getting that break, then you need to go to your principal and you need to ask them to implement a universally recommended research-based 20-minute daily recess period. And you need to be proud of your advocacy for your children. You need to be willing to say to your principal, look, I think you're a wonderful person. I'm asking you to do this at the school level. If you can't do it or if you won't do it, I just want to let you know that I'm going to keep moving up the ladder until I get it done. Good for you. That's really that's really what we've done uh, on the state level. We're so proud to say that we have secured the um, the support of the future Speaker of the House and the future Senate President next year. Um, our bill will be sponsored again by Representative Placencia, and it will be sponsored in the Senate this year by a senator out of Miami-Dade County, um, Senator Flores, who is a mom who has young children. So, um, so we love that, and and I think it's really great, um, a really great kind of keep pushing, keep trying success story to just share with your audience that the future Speaker of the House, who has now committed to support our bill next session, is actually one of the two legislators who voted against the bill in the House last wow. year. Good for you. And that's the power of a lot of moms continuing to push. And in the end, it is a democracy, and it is, in the end, uh, a state legislature that better respond to large groups of people or be voted out of office. I had one last question. For parents who hear physical ed or PE class is a substitute for recess, explain to the folks why PE, I mean, I know the answer to this, but what's the difference between PE and recess as it relates to your kids' development? Sure. PE is an incredibly important part of your child's education, but it is separate and distinct from recess. Um, There are unique skills that children learn during unstructured play on the playground. That's where they learn to problem solve. That's where they leadership skills and social skills and coping skills, Um, and those things cannot be replicated in the classroom. PE is a class. It is structured. It is teacher-led. Your children are directed to do A, B, and C. Uh, It is not unstructured free play. And here in Florida, there are Florida standards attached to the PE curriculum, and those teachers are required to show learning gains learning games. As a matter of fact, fifth graders uh, um, in our district or in our state are actually tested in PE at the end of the year. So PE is certainly worthwhile, but it's not a break from the rigor and the curriculum of the classroom. And the research that I referred to earlier shows that academics improve when children get a break from the classroom that is unstructured so that they can truly rejuvenate, refresh their minds, and come back to the classroom. And Angela, we all know this because we need that time in our lives throughout our lives. We just know this to be true, but it's great to have the research to back it up. Moms, recess moms, fighting for recess to be put back into Florida schools. Angela Browning leading the fight. Angela, thanks so much for joining us, and let's keep in touch and find out what happens in this legislative session coming up. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for screaming and shouting, try another venue. If you're looking for opinion and callers, my goodness, there are so many options. Our show, stories only and authors only. No pundits, no opinions. And for the next 30 minutes, we want to talk about a a fascinating book written by a a really terrific writer named Jay Nordlinger. He's a senior editor of National Review. He writes about politics. He writes about art. He's a music critic of the new Criterion. His previous previous book is Peace, They Say, A History of the Nobel Peace Prize. And Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm a big fan, long have been. Well, thanks so much. And Children of Monsters is the title. And, you know, I just wanted to get into one word before we go further. Monsters is often used as a playful term, Monsters, Inc., and you think away that we people talk about it. But some of us actually believe there are real-life monsters. Talk a bit about the use of that word, Jay. Well, I wanted something bold, of course, and descriptive. And when you're dealing with Hitler, Stalin, Mao, the Kims in North Korea, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, the Assads, Papa Doc, I figured that monsters would be okay. Maybe a touch of hyperbole in some cases, but people get the drift. Close enough. And it, it, yes. it means so much more, and it, it connotes a world of good and evil. It connotes uh, a spiritual dimension. We had uh, just had on Tony Dolan to discuss some of Ronald Reagan's speeches, and uh, that dimension was there so deeply and so often. How did this co- yes. book? How did this book come about, Jay? Well, I was in Albania some years ago, and Albania had suffered one of the worst dictatorships of the whole 20th century. There was pretty much nothing else like it on Earth except for that Kim dictatorship in North Korea, and the Albanian dictator Hoxha admired Kim Il-sung and imitated him to a degree. And when I was there, I wondered, well, did Hoja have children? And if so, what were their lives like? Uh, could they go out? How did people treat them? Did they have to change their name? Did they have to leave the country? Were they proud? Were they ashamed? And uh, I thought that the Hoja children, and he did have three, might make a good magazine piece. And then I thought, well, you could do a survey of such sons and daughters, sons and daughters of dictators, and make a book of it called Children of Monsters. So I acted on it some years later. That's terrific. And, you know, as you were thinking about that, you know, there's sons of very wealthy people, and there must be some things that are in common, that those kids have in common with very, very wealthy people. And, and, and were there things you found, before we get into the individual spaces, were there commonalities, Jay, in the stories? Yes, and you're quite right about children of the wealthy. Of course, all of these dictators are wealthy, really. Uh, they plunder. They do other things. And some of the dictators' kids are spoiled brats, uh, arrogant princes and princesses. Uh, some are more mild. Some are really scared and abused. So there's a mixture here, a variety, but they do have things in common. Uh, the main thing they have in common is that that unusual position or status of being the son or daughter of the dictator who is often the godhead, the little deity of the whole country. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you again before we dig in, so you're, you're, you've got five kids, four kids, three kids. You know, when you read Shakespeare, 
the quest to replace that all-powerful one becomes a, a type of brotherly and sibling rivalry, the likes of which most of us can't understand, Jay. And to what degree do these powerful, because these monsters all have power. And so the kids, I think, one day may wish to have some of that power. Uh, talk about the effect that power has and the quest to replace or be above some of your siblings might have in terms of the familial structure itself, Jay. Well, that's so true. Uh, it creates sibling rivalry, to say the least. We see this in the Qaddafi family, where three or four brothers, and Qaddafi had seven sons, were vying to succeed the old man. In the end, he was brought down before it could happen. Uh, Assad, uh, that is, uh, Hafez Assad, had several sons. One was designated to be the successor, the eldest, but he was killed in a car crash. So the next one, uh, he was next in line, and that's Bashar, the current Assad. There was competition in North Korea. We've now had three Kims there. Uh, in Haiti, probably the most suited child of Papa Doc to be the next dictator was a daughter, but she was ruled out because of her sex, and that's true in other families too. So it had to be Baby Doc, who was completely unsuited. So yes, absolutely, this exists in these families, especially the bigger ones with a lot of brothers. Well, I always think of the lion in winter and that great scene where Catherine Hepburn playing Eleanor of Aquitaine is talking about all of the problems. Anthony Hopkins plays the son of the king. These sons are battling out because one of them will be king. The rest won't be. And there's this great moment where she says, as she looks around the carnage, every family has its ups and downs. And uh, (laughs) I, I guess it's just a little different in those families. Let's get specific if we can, Jay. Some sons succeed their fathers as dictator. Who are they? Well, uh, there are lots of them all over the world. I deal with only three cases, the Kims in North Korea and the Assads in Syria and the Duvaliers in Haiti. Uh, You have other Africans of whom this is true, too. But uh, the dynastic principle or instinct is alive in dictatorships, as in uh, monarchies. And, of course, we have sons following fathers in democratic politics, but I think that's different uh, because these are all democratic choices. Uh, for example, Americans have long elected Adamses and Harrisons and Tafts and Roosevelts and Kennedys and Clintons and Bushes and more. Has a daughter ever become a dictator, Jay? I don't think so. Now, in history, there have been queens with what you might call dictatorial power. And there was a relatively brief uh, period in India, the emergency rule presided over by Indira. I don't know if that qualifies as a dictatorship. But in the main, a dictatorship seems to be a man's business. Jay, you have have included here um, Hitler. What's he doing in your book? He didn't have kids. I mean, he had shepherds, but that wasn't going to do much for (laughs) an inheritance of power. You mean dogs, Lee? Yes, German shepherds, that is. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, um, he didn't have kids. Everyone knows that. But there was a claimant. There was a man who claimed to be Hitler's son, a Frenchman. More specifically, his mother claimed that this was true. And um, probably this fellow, Jean-Marie Loret, was not the son of Hitler. Uh, But the key question for me is... Uh, he believed himself to be the son of Hitler. So what effect did this have on him? 
And the answer was very, very bad. And he may not have been Hitler's son, Loray, but he looked a heck of a lot like him. And so for that matter, does his son, the alleged grandson, Philippe, who lives in France with two portraits of Hitler on his living room wall. And uh, one of my little jokes is you would think one portrait would have been enough. Yeah, you would think. You know, we're talking to Jay Nordlinger. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories and his fabulous new book, Children of Monsters. And you can catch all that we're doing on the web at ouramericannetwork.org. And you can also catch all of this live each night. And we love to do also, Jay, with our partners, This Day in Histories. And, folks, you can catch those as well. Our Hamilton is up on the line uh, and we caught some remarkable interviews with the author of that great book and even some sound bites with a playwright from a 60 Minutes interview that occurred uh, about six or seven months ago when the, when the play was just first getting the attention it so deserves. More with Jay Nordlinger after this. Again, this is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. No news, no opinion, no screaming and yelling, just stories, great writers, more after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And visit us at ouramericannetwork.org. A couple of our favorites that are posted, that great profile on Coach Saban and his father and how his father shaped who he became. And also right above it, a remarkable column from the Wall Street Journal that was performed by us by Keith Blanchard, in which he finally lived up to the promise that he had always made his dad to take him out to Baja, to big, big fish country, to hunt for marlin and fish for marlin. It's a beautiful father-son story. And right now we're talking to Jay Nordlinger, who's one of America's most versatile and I think witty writers. And uh, Jay joins us now because we're here to promote his book, and it's a remarkable read, Children of Monsters. Jay, thanks again for joining us. Oh, thank you. You know, father-sons, I mean, it's, it's classic. It's every Arthur Miller play when you really think about it. Let's talk about some fathers and sons in particular. Paul Pot, what kind of a father was he, and what's it like being a son to a man like this? Well, Paul Pot had a child late in life after his Khmer Rouge regime fell. He was about 60. This was a second wife, and he had a girl. And uh, he died when she was 12. And apparently he treated her with great affection and tenderness, and she feels very warmly toward him. Pol Pot was, of course, a genocidal monster whose regime killed somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of the whole Cambodian population. It's hard to imagine him as a father, but he was that pretty late in life when he was in the jungle, hanging out with his comrades, never to regain power. 
he had this daughter and apparently a very sweet relationship with her. And she's a beautiful young woman of about 30 now who got married last year. And one interesting fact about her tidbit is that she earned a master's degree in English literature, of all things. And the reason I, I, I speak in this way about that is that her father and his gang would kill people merely because they wore glasses, which, should, which suggested that they had read something and therefore might pose a danger to the regime. And here, uh, brother number one, as Pol Pot was called, his daughter uh, went on to get a master's degree in English literature. That's just one of those weird twists of history, I would say. Well, it's a twist of history, but it also tells us, Jay, that monsters aren't all monsters and not everything is all black and white. I think this is what art does so well for all of us. It humanizes everything. And if we're Christians, particularly, uh, well, we believe there's uh, evil in all of us. And uh, it's not, though it is surprising, in the end, you know, anything can happen in this world. What is the ghastliest or most eye-popping story in the book, Jay? Well, there are a lot of them, certainly involving the Qaddafi sons and Saddam Hussein and his two little monster sons. Uh, Bokassa, the so-called emperor of Central Africa, he crowned himself emperor Napoleon style in a cathedral. Uh, He did terrible, terrible things. Uh, So my book is full of these tales, but I must say that it is leavened with some humor and some streaks of light, some inspiration. Uh, This book does have a ghoulish side, a macabre side, even a kind of sensationalistic or tabloid side. But there is also some uplift, I'm happy to say. Otherwise, I, I, I couldn't have borne to write it. Well, tell me this. Which of the children of all the ones you covered had the most interesting life's journey, Jay? I would say it's hard to top Svetlana Stalin, Stalin's daughter, who had a long, rocky, turbulent life, a seeking life, the life of a seeker. She, in fact, uh, defected from the Soviet Union in 1967 and uh, wrote uh, three memoirs, two of which are terrific and enduring, and the other of which is interesting. And I do admire Svetlana. Uh, She could be pretty callous at times and more than a little crazy, but frankly, given her background, who can really blame her? I think she did about as well as she could under the circumstances. Tell me about some of that uh, some of that writing of hers. What did she write about, and what was she searching for, do you think, in the end? Well, uh, she wrote about uh, her life with father. Wasn't that a TV show, Lee? I can't <laughs> yep. remember. The life with father. Uh, she wrote about that. She wrote about the Kremlin court, about the Soviet Union, and her own personal experiences Uh, with men and other people. And she really wrote quite beautifully. Uh, She was always seeking for religion. Uh, She converted, I think, in the late 1950s to Orthodox Christianity in the Soviet Union. And she tried all sorts of other religions when she was in the West. She moved around constantly. She even redefected, so to speak, to the Soviet Union. And thanks to the rise of Gorbachev, was let out. Um, So she was a restless seeker. And eventually, um, she died pretty anonymously in a Wisconsin nursing home when she was in her mid-80s, three or four years ago. If you can imagine this woman born in the Kremlin, the princess of the whole vast USSR in the 1920s, 
she goes on to die pretty quietly in a Wisconsin nursing home. Quite a cinematic arc, don't you think? I mean, rarely yes. do stories start yes. and end like that. It's remarkable. What does your book yes. tell us, Jay, about the age-old argument between nature versus nurture? Dig into that if you could. Well, you know, I, I don't really do much with that. As as our illustrious president said in another context, that's above our my pay grade. <laughs> right, right. And I'll tell you why. This is the example I cite. Ceausescu in Romania had two sons, uh, Valentin and Niku. And the younger one, Niku, was a perfect little dad, and his mother, for that matter, Elena. He was a terrible person who hurt a lot of people. He pretty much spent his life swaggering and raping and killing and sort of dictating his way through Romania, though he was not dictator yet. Could have been if his father hadn't fallen. And he did this until essentially he drank himself to death when he was in his early 40s. Vasily Stalin, by the way, one of Stalin's sons before him, did just the same thing in the Soviet Union. So that was Niku. The other Ceausescu's son, Valentin, as far as I know, has never harmed a hair on anyone's head. He never wanted anything to do with politics or dictatorship or power. He studied physics and joined a scientific institute that he's still at on the outskirts of Bucharest. They couldn't be more different. And so where does that leave me with nature nurture? It, I really, um, that's why I, I don't say too much about it, because as soon as I say one thing, I can contradict it with another thing. Yeah, and that's welcome to being a parent with a few kids. I think we all have been there. I know my parents would look at the four of their children and go, oh, my goodness, so very different outcomes. How are they? Such very different kids, same exact parenting. They didn't change. They just didn't have as much control as any parent thinks they might have over the outcome. Uh, Talk about uh, dictators' scars left behind, the emotional ones particularly, Jay, uh, let alone other kinds. Uh, Some of these people never recover. Uh, They live in the shadow of their father. They're haunted. They're despised. Sometimes they kill themselves. Sometimes they're poor, destitute. But others of them, uh, they live very good lives, at least materially. They still have loot, wealth. There's always a cadre of loyalists and defenders around them. And there's a lot of denial. I'll tell you something I put in the afterword of my book. While I was writing this book, I passed a sign in New York for a Broadway show, Jersey Boys, which is about early rock and roll. It's the Frankie Valley story. Mm-hmm. And the tagline on the poster was, everyone remembers it how they need to. And I thought, how interesting, because that is true of these men and women, the sons and daughters, the kids, as I call them, I'm writing about. Most of them remember it how they need to. They twist it so as not to go completely nuts. I quote in my book the old Solzhenitsyn maxim, live not by lies. That's one reason I admire Svetlana. She eventually rose to live not by lies. But a lot of them do live by lies. And believe me, I don't excuse them at all. But I do understand them. I think they're really remembering it the way they have to. Yeah, how else could they cope in the end, Jay? It's a coping mechanism in the end for some of these people. And dare us not judge being born in a a situation like that. By the way, I love the fact that you talked about Idi Amin, who had 60 kids 
with 21 different women and was actually, as you put it, a busy man. <laughs> yeah, very busy, but a much lo- loved father to his children. I wanted to end with this, and we got about a minute and a half left. Does the book say something about the blessings, if any, of a free society and the rule of law? Talk, uh, talk about that as we close things out, Jay. You know, not really, Lee, uh, but some of my readers have taken that away from their reading. Mark Halpern said, for example, it made him so grateful for liberal democracy and the rule of law and some sort of accountability. And um, I think he said something like, thank God I live here under this American constitutional order. And other readers have had that same reaction. So I didn't aim for it. Uh, But I'm glad that people took this away. Uh, The rule of law is a relatively uncommon thing in history. Most people don't have it. And we're supposed, we, the United States, are supposed to be a nation of laws, not men. And sometimes we see a break, a breakdown here or there. And I frankly haven't been very happy with the Obama presidency. But thank God we get another shot at it. We have rotation in office and future elections and essentially the rule of law. So dictatorship is a dangerous and seductive thing. And um, glad we don't live under it. You bet. And always our transitions are peaceful. We're talking with Jay Nordlinger, the book... Children of Monsters. Thank you so much, Jay, for joining us. Thanks a million, Lee. You bet. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and you can catch all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll be back after these messages. 